right into sharing a Christmas message, and um, one deep from my heart. I believe, as you all well know, we're celebrating the birth of Jesus, but to really, I believe, to understand the birth of Jesus in its full meaning, we have to understand things that happened as a result of and after the birth of Jesus. And so, namely, what I mean by that is the fact that, number one, Jesus is not right now on a cross. He's not in a grave. He's not in a cradle, for sure. He is ascended into the highest place with a name that is above every other name right now, right now as we speak. And before that, he was resurrected from the dead in order to give life to you and me. Before that, he died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And all of that would never have taken place had God not come in the form of a man and be born in this earth, which is what we're celebrating today, that all that that I just described could happen. So we're going to go look at things in reverse a little bit this Christmas morning, but I think it's going to put Christmas into its proper perspective, and hopefully that we will hear this morning what God is saying to you about his heart for you and his, and his call to you and me. Can we pray real quick? Lord, we thank you. God, we can't even close to ever thank you enough for what you have done in demonstrating your grace and your love and your care and your initiation. Uh, you died, you demonstrated your love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. We recognize every single one of us uh, fit that, rep, fit that uh, description that we are apart from you ungodly. Thank you, Jesus, this morning that you came to demonstrate the love of God to us and what you did. We ask you this morning in boldness that by the Holy Spirit, there would be a revelation in the hearts of your people of who Jesus is and of what you are saying to us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Before we get into kind of looking at those main things, I just want to share personally from my own story um, and just mainly to make the point that this stuff that we're talking about, we're going to hear some words tossed around like ascended into heaven and resurrected and paid the penalty for our sins and these kind of doctrinal verbiage and terminology and uh, church words, I guess you could say. And I just want to say, though I did personally grow up in a church, Never did I understand the gospel growing up in the way that I understand it today. And so the way that this gospel became a living reality in my life is not even because of church. And I'm saying that because some of us perhaps grew up in church and it's almost like, you know, the same old, same old. And this is just what evangelical Christians believe. And I don't even like to throw around categories like that. I want to tell you and testify this morning that what Jesus came to die for and what he did, the new birth, this thing that... Christians refer to as getting saved or born again, that's not just a theology or a doctrine. That's an experience I had outside of church without any of y'all church people sharing it with me. And I know, my whole point in saying all that, I know this is real. This is not like a, a theory or just another religion like all the other religions. Yes, I grew up in America that in the 70s and 80s was a Christian nation, whatever that may mean. And perhaps that exposed me to more Christian. I don't know. All I know is this is the one true, holy, living God 
sending his son for all people. This message, this reality of what Jesus did is real. And so I want to just kind of share with you, when I was, uh, the way it happened to me, senior in high school, Catholic priest, I grew up a Roman Catholic, nothing against Catholics, I'm just saying I never heard the gospel and I didn't know anybody we, we certainly didn't say the term born again. I'll just say that. <laughs> and, uh, or get saved. In fact, if you heard those words, we were taught, run from those people. They're weird. And so uh, I did, I, that was not something I was pursuing or anything. And, and the Catholic priest talking to me, not using that terminology, but this is what he said. He took us through, a, through an exercise about seeing the difference between knowing God and knowing, or knowing Jesus and knowing about Jesus. And it was when he went through that exercise, I realized I did not know Jesus in the way that I know my closest earthly relationships. No, no way. And yet it amused me and amazed me, the idea that could I know him on that level? And that night, I took the scripture that this Catholic priest, Father Richard Lopez, said. He's quoted one scripture, seek and you will find. And, I, and God, by the way, is honored when we take his word at his word, and I said, Lord, you said, seek and you will find, and I'm seeking this relationship, and I know I don't have it with you. I want to find. I want to find it. No one told me the gospel, the Holy Spirit, in that moment, and I'm not trying to be dramatic. I'm just telling you what happened. The Holy Spirit in that moment began to, I don't even know how to say it other than I somehow knew in my innermost being, somewhere I had heard somewhere, I still to this day don't even know where, that you're supposed to repent of your sins and declare Jesus to be Lord. And so I just began to repent. Now, as a Catholic, I began to list all my sins. You know, that's what you do in your confessional. I don't know if you guys know that. You sit down with the priest and you tell everything you've done. And so I just started trying to do that. And then I realized, I don't even know what sin is. How can I know what sin is? I don't even know you. How can I know what you like and what you don't like if I don't even know you? And Lord, I just want to say I recognize I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness and I want to repent of sin. And as I began to say that, I, I realized what it means to confess him as Lord, that I'm giving my life to him. He's my leader. And I somehow knew that he's not dead. He's alive and that he's going to come live inside of me. He's going to show me. He's going to lead me. And so if I declare him to be my Lord, that he's actually going to talk to me. He's going to show me step by step. He's going to live with me. And I, so I said, Jesus, I put my life in your hands. And uh, and that was that. I prayed. I felt the presence of God in that moment. I want to testify to you this morning. That night, I got born again. Stuff started happening inside of me. Six months down the road, I'm with all of my same friends. We're still doing all the same stuff that high school kids do. I know that comes as a shocker, but I didn't know any other born-again Christians for 12 months. So I'm still running with the same crowd, doing the same stuff, but something's happening. I'm starting to feel bad about stuff that I never felt bad about. And I began to realize, I've heard that thing about being born again. I remember telling my friends, I think I got born again. Nah, you wouldn't be born again. If you were born again, you wouldn't be doing all this stuff with us. I was like, oh, maybe you're right. My point, my friends, is this thing has happened, and so many things subsequent have happened to me that I know no man has taught this. This is real. And so what we want to look at uh, is who this Jesus that is now living inside of me, if I can say that boldly, and I do say it boldly, I know he lives inside of me by the Spirit. 
This Jesus lives inside of me. He lives inside of everyone who has become born again, placed their faith in Jesus. But he also simultaneously, right now, right as we speak, right now, is ascended in, in the highest place that ever will be with a name that is above every other name. Can I read a scripture to you? Ephesians 1.19. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he, God, raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, in far above all rule, all authority, power, and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Elsewhere, Paul says in Philippians 2.8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted, exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name. My point being, my friends, yes, we're celebrating Christmas this morning, but this Jesus that we're celebrating is not a baby in a manger. Not, not now. He's not even on a cross. He's not even in a grave. He's not even resurrected from the dead and walking amongst us as he did. He is ascended at the very highest place with a name that is above every other name, eternally placed equal completely in every way to God himself and will one day judge all the living and the dead because he has all authority in heaven and in earth. That is the Jesus that we celebrate this morning. But before that happened, he rose from the grave. Now, let me just kind of take my pastor hat on just for uh, off. Yeah, this hat that you saw, the pastor hat, I'm putting that here right now. And I'm going to just say, in college, I was a history major. So that's what I studied. And just like in science, there's a scientific method to make sure that we're doing things correctly and that we're, we're verifying things accurately to, to, to establish if it's law or theory and et cetera, et cetera. But in history, it's, there's a similar thing. It's the historical method. We have to verify everything by first-person accounts, and other things that are second-hand accounts are less weighted in the history profession, right? We know without a shadow of a doubt, there was a historic man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Whether we believe he's the son of God, whether he was raised from the dead, put that aside right now. We know historically there was a Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We also know that there were absolutely 12 apostles, 11 of whom were still doing the works of Jesus afterwards and writing letters, planting churches, ultimately gave their lives were persecuted, and most of whom were killed for this faith. Can I just toss something at you from a purely historical perspective? If the resurrection did not happen, which, by the way, is the basis of our faith, without the resurrection, there is no faith. Without, if Jesus is not alive, it's just another religion like any other religion. The thing that separates, perhaps, Christianity from all other religions is the fact that the one who started this one is alive today. He's alive, and not only is he alive, but he lives in you. And if you take away the resurrection, if he's just dead, all we have is a bunch of teachings, a bunch of doctrine, a bunch of ways of living, a moral code, but there's nothing as transformative and able to actually change your innermost being. Take away the resurrection, you've got nothing. And if the resurrection did not happen, there's only two options, my friends. We, either the apostles, the historical people, you, you know the 12 apostles, were either liars and they were colluding in a lie, or they were lunatics. Ain't no other way to see this. If they were liars, we've got to believe 
that these people colluded in a lie. We know they're historical figures. We've still got their, their, the letters that they wrote to actual people in actual cities, actual churches, reporting all these things that they claimed to see Jesus risen from the dead. They had to have colluded in a lie and colluded in a lie that one day they would give their lives for. Now, usually when you lie, it's for some kind of ulterior motive. Who the heck would die for that? And at some point, surely one of them would have kind of slipped and said, forget this lie, I'm just not going to tell the lie, I'm going to expose the lie. Surely one of them would have. If they lied, please explain to me the Apostle Paul, historical figure, persecuting Christians decades after Jesus rises from the dead, on a dime, claims to see the resurrected Christ and gives the rest of his life to the ministry of the gospel, planting churches, preaching the gospel, and ultimately being stoned and persecuted himself. Explain how did he come into this collusion of a lie. So if it wasn't a lie, the only other alternative would be that these guys were nutters. Pardon the expression. I don't mean to sound um, insensitive with mental illness. But they, it had to have been mental illness. Now, what, what are the odds that Jesus would have recruited 12 very delusional, mentally ill people who would have had such charisma that they could start what is today the largest religion on the planet, that it would exceed down 2,000 years ago to you and me in this room right now worshiping the same Jesus because of the work that they did, all belonging in a mental institution. So if they, if they, were, if they weren't lying and if they weren't lunatics, the only other possible equation or, or solution I can find is that Jesus rose from the dead and they were telling the truth and they saw him. Let me just say this. Paul the Apostle, who, as I said earlier, decades later, after Jesus resurrects from the dead and has his own encounter. Some of you probably know it. He was on a donkey. On his way to persecuting Christians in the city of Damascus, sees a great light, falls off the donkey, tells the story a million times from that point forward of how Jesus speaks to him in that moment. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he gives his life to the Lord in that moment, becomes born again. That man wrote these words. For what I received, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, the Greek word for Peter, who wrote Peter, <laughs> First and Second Peter. He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters. Historically, you've got to think historically. He's referring to people that could have said that this is not true. He says that 500, more than 500 people, brothers and sisters, at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, as of the time of this writing to the, church, to the letter of Corinthians. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, Saul of Tarsus, also as to one abnormally born. We've got Peter, we've got the 12 apostles, we've got 500 disciples in Jerusalem, we've got Saul of Tarsus himself. My friends, if Jesus, if, this, if they were not liars, if they're not lunatics, and Jesus is actually alive, what is the relevance of that to you and to me? Well, one is what I just said. He is not dead. He is alive. He is alive forevermore. That he becomes, in that sense, the ultimate hero. 
in that we've got some heroes that, I don't know, Winston Churchill or, you know, fighting against and holding back the Nazi regime. And, 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 and what, here's Jesus who overcame death, <laughs> the wages of sin, that, that anyone who places their faith in him would not die spiritually, would go on into eternity and live in paradise with him and his father. He overcomes death. That's significant. He is alive, meaning that he's not a dead religious icon who said some great things a long time ago. He lives within the church. The second thing is that he has authority. If death, the wages of sin, brought him, in fact, he fully experienced death, went into a grave. He was dead. He was clinically dead, brought into a grave, comes back from the dead. He now has, he, he, as he said of himself, he is the resurrection and the life. He has power to give eternal life to all who would call upon him. If you don't believe me, let's read Jesus' words, John 17, as he was praying before he was put to death. He says, glorify, Father, your son, that your son also may glorify you. Listen to this. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life as to as many as you have given him. He's got power to give eternal life. The same life that was in him that raised his body from the dead is given to all and is inside of all by the Holy Spirit when you receive this Jesus. And before he rose from the dead, he had to go to that cross and pay the penalty for our sins. Can I mess with your head a little bit here? It messes with my head, like, big time. 2 Corinthians 5.21. I just want to read this scripture to us. For he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Can I just tell you what that means, what we just read? For God made Jesus, who had never sinned, to become sin. What, is, what are we talking about when we say become sin? Put this into context that a just, holy, true, and righteous God who is also, yes, full of grace and love, but he's true, he's righteous, he is just, and he cannot be those things and abide sin. And just as every person in this room gets angry at times, God most surely gets angry. And let me tell you what he gets angry about. He is furious at the effects of sin upon his creation and what in the mess that it has created amongst us. Every time a person is raped, every time a child is molested, every time things are stolen from a person that's not theirs, every time there are hurtful things done by people, it is sin operating inside you and me that cause all of the evil and the pain that you and I have experienced from the beginning of our lives to this moment right now. It's sin operating. It's our fallen nature. God hates it. And he has wrath upon it, and it must be judged by a holy, just, righteous God. And God, therefore, could I say, in a sense, has a dilemma. That if he is to pour his wrath upon sin, his wrath gets poured upon the sinner with it. Because sin dwells in one place and one place only, inside of the heart of man. 
And if he's going to pour out the wrath, his wrath, it, it, it will take out the sinner with it. He said, I would, I, we need a solution to this problem. Because if you, man is the one who sinned. Man, therefore, has to pay the penalty. And he looks upon the earth and he finds not one person who doesn't have sin and therefore is, there's not one person who's a just, holy sacrifice for that sin. I'll come up with the solution, he would say. I will become a man. I will become the sacrifice that's necessary. I, listen to this, will have the fullness of the wrath of God towards sin poured out upon myself so that not one person ever has to experience it if they would just believe in the one through whom I'm doing this amazing thing. <laughs> in Christ, the wrath of God becomes satisfied. Now let me just put it in these terms. If I pay, and some of you have, a lot of money for a Christmas present, you're going to expect quite a bit out of that Christmas present, right? Because the value of a thing is determined by its cost. And if that's true, what would be the value of the blood of God himself? Is it enough to pay for the penalty of our sin? Is it enough that while I still have a sin nature after I get born again, that that blood would atone for my sins and give me access to him. That I could have a relationship with him as though I have no sin. Is it enough? This, my friends, is why he died. Is to give us access to God. Can I read one scripture to us? There will probably be more. But right now, one. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers... Having, hear this, boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. The holiest is that place in the innermost part of the temple where God's presence dwelt. No man except for the high priest entered there once per year, and even he had to tie something around his ankle unless he died in the holiness of his presence when he went in there. We're finding out that we all, because of what Jesus did, have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. The value of a thing is determined by its cost. By a new and living way by which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us, here's the point, here's the point of the cross, let us draw near. My friends, this is... The message of Jesus is God saying, I'm coming to you, come to me. That's it. That's the whole point. That is Jesus, the intermediary between God and man to bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven. In full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled with an, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, I love this passage of scripture, Roman, scripture, Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But before he died for us, Jesus had to be born. And this is what we're celebrating today, that this Jesus came, as I just said, he was born to connect heaven to earth and earth back to heaven.
Luke 2. I love this story. While Jesus is being born, God decides to send some angels. Now, one would think he would send these angels to see the high priests or the, pre, the Levitical priests or the sons of Aaron, the, those in the priestly regalia and the religious so on and so forth. And who, does, who, do the, who do the angels go and appear to? Three shepherds out in a field. Also three wise men. Three wise men. People that weren't even Jewish. They were astrologers. They would have been seen as like ungodly during that time. And these shepherds, just lowly shepherds out in the field taking care of sheep. My point being is if you think that you're not of the religious type, you're not of the religious crowd, from Kevin's perspective, you are just who he's looking for. And he appears to these three shepherds. Now listen to what happens as a declaration of what this birth of Jesus was about. Now there were in the same country shepherds, verse 8 of chapter 2 of Luke, uh, in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over the flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. I want to tell you this morning, the story of Jesus, the message of Jesus to you and me is good news of great joy. For those who resist it, it is not great joy. It is the stench of death. But the moment you receive and place your faith in this Jesus and receive him, it becomes good news and produces some great joy. Good news of great joy, which will be to all people. Thank God it is to all people people. He spoke this into a Jewish context. The whole gospel started in that place, and today a nation that wasn't even known of 2,000 years ago, here we are now, this day, celebrating the same Jesus, because this thing has gone out to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, hear, hear this, a Savior, we've already talked about that, who is Christ the Lord, highest in authority supreme in authority. And this will be a sign to you. You, shepherds, will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger, and suddenly, when he, when he gets to this point, this one angel speaking to these three shepherds with the glory of the Lord shining all around them, he gets to the point of announcing that there's a baby born and that you're going to find this born wrapped in swaddling cloths in a feeding trough for animals. And in that moment, the scene shifts that they're seeing. And it says, and suddenly there was an, with the angel the entire multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. They had an open epiphany of vision right into what was happening around the throne of God at this announcement of the birth of Christ. And what was the multitude of the heavenly hosts saying? Something simple. Glory to God in the highest, which is to say, and to announce that the birth of this Jesus is going to produce glory to God in the highest. That today a man named Paul Nichols, 2,000 years later, regularly gives glory to God because I know him now. I have relationship with him now. I see him in his awesomeness and in his wonder and his glory because his spirit, not by theory, literally lives in me, me, the person. I worship him. I give him glory. He's, they're saying, because of the birth of this Jesus, there will be glory 
to God in the highest forevermore. That's from earth to heaven. And on earth, goodwill and peace towards men. That's the heart of heaven towards and I don't even know if those words can in English suffice to tell what actually we're saying here is that God sending Jesus is goodwill towards you and me. It is to bring peace because the debt becomes satisfied. We have peace with God. We have peace with one another. We become born again children of God, not deserving of anything of it. That, my friends, is what we're celebrating today. Can I just say, the relevance of him being born, maybe two things among a million we could say, but one is that he fully identifies with us as humans. So often we look at God as he's aloof and he's unable to identify with this sin, so I would rather keep it hidden and keep it secret because God could never understand. And Jesus says, I have been tempted in your shoes in all ways just as you. Therefore, we can fully turn that heart to him, knowing he is well able to help us. You see, we don't want to repent because we don't trust ourselves to be able to walk free from sin. That's not what Jesus asks us to do. He asks us to repent, place our faith in him, and to look to him for the help that only he can provide to begin to walk free of it. And he gives us the forgiveness the moment we make that decision, even before we're free from it. Secondly, he identifies with this as a human, but in this same announcement, you may remember the angel in another part of the birth announcement declared Jesus to be Emmanuel, God with us. The fact that he became one of us sends a signal to you and me this morning. God's purpose is to be with you and for us to be with him, to connect heaven to earth and earth to heaven. And very simply, you've heard it, you've seen it cross-stitched on a pillow, you've seen it on a magnet on a refrigerator, you've seen people at baseball and football games holding a sign that says John 3.16, but can I say it one more time to us, God so loved the world. And if I could ask, if we could just close in prayer, and I'd like to, to read this scripture over us as we do so, because it all boils down to this, I believe, declaration right here, God so loved the world that he gave. Christmas is about giving gifts. Guys, do you have any idea what the value of this gift is? That he gave his one and only son. He gave his one and only son. I want to remind you at that moment of the cross, when Jesus hung there, he said some very significant words right before breathing his last, and they are these. My father... My Father, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, the full wrath of God upon sin, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Ultimate effect of sin is absolute separation from God. My friends, the Father felt the pain of having that punishment put upon his son Jesus and having to release Jesus to face it on his own. The pain the Father felt in that moment, and the pain and the suffering that that son at the same time went, all of which demonstrates to you and me what he thinks of you, what he feels about you, what distance he goes 
to save you. And how do we receive this gift? He gave his one and only son, and here's all we do, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. He gives his son. We give him belief. And let me explain something about belief, because we've got to get it out of our thinking that it simply means to believe a bunch of things in our mind about Jesus. The demons believe about Jesus and tremble, James says. That does not save our soul. Belief is to place our faith in a new leader who wants to live in us, wants to speak in us, wants to lead our lives from this point forward. And God, in this moment, is presenting the gospel to you to say, I am calling you, my child, to myself, to have you as my son and my daughter every bit as much as Jesus is my son. I'm calling you, and the option, the decision is to believe. And the wonderful thing is even the Father, it's the Holy Spirit who works in our hearts to even cause that belief to erupt inside of our hearts. I take no credit for the moment that I got born again at the age of 17. I, I, I wasn't seeking for it. I just prayed a prayer and asked God to show me. I said, Lord, I'm seeking you. Help me to find you. And he revealed, he revealed the gospel to me by the Holy Spirit. That same Holy Spirit, that same God is in this room right now calling you to himself. And if we are to receive the gift of his son, it's simply to repent to acknowledge that we are sinners, we need forgiveness, and to turn from sin, but not just turn from sin, turn to Jesus as our new leader. Sin is simply everything outside of the will of Jesus. That's all it is. And so Jesus, you can, you can do that right now. You can receive him right now, my friends. Even right now. All you have to do is pray, pray with me, and I would invite you you don't have to pray it out loud, but I'm just going to pray out loud. You can join me. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for being born. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for the blood that has covered all of my sins. In this moment, I repent of sin. I return from sin. I want to run from it. I hate sin with you. I join you in hating sin. I want to turn from it. It does me no good. And I turn to the only one who saves my soul. I turn to you, Jesus. I declare you to be my Lord. Come live inside of me by your spirit forever and ever. Let me live with you forever and follow you from this day forward. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen.